We're going to be in the book of Zechariah tonight. We'll get back into our study of the Minor Prophets. And uh, not quite yet halfway, but close to the book of Zechariah. And then have the book of Malachi uh, to go through. But we'll be in Zechariah chapter 5 tonight. Let me ask you to stand. We'll get right to it tonight. Zechariah chapter 5 is interesting and unique. Um, as I mentioned, I will mention again in a moment, these are visions and dreams Zechariah is having. And uh, what he sees has uh, application for his audience. So let's look. We're going to see two visions tonight. We're going to join them together. And we'll begin our reading in Zechariah chapter 5, verse 1. Zechariah and an angel are here in view. Then I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a flying roll, or for our purposes, a scroll. Okay, is what that would be. And he said unto me, What seest thou? So this is the angel asking Zechariah, What do you see? And I answered, I see a flying roll. The length thereof is twenty cubits, and the breadth thereof ten cubits. Then said he unto me, This is the curse that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth, for everyone that stealeth shall be cut off as on this side according to it, and everyone that sweareth shall be cut off as on that side according to it. In other words, this is bearing false witness is the idea. So stealing and bearing false witness are the two sins in view here that if you violate brings a curse. Verse 4. And I will bring it forth, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief, into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name, and it shall remain in the midst of his house, and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. So the Lord's saying, for those who break these commandments, and these may stand in, as representative of all the commandments, that there'll be a time when God punishes these things in Israel. Now the second vision in verse 5. Then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes, and see what is, what is this that goeth forth. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is an ephah that goeth forth. And he said, Moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead. Now think about a lid, okay? Like a lid on a pot. And there's a talent of lead, and this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. And ephah was a measurement of weight. So what we really have here is a, um, a giant pot, if you will, or a basket with a lid on it. And there's a woman inside of it. You with me? Okay, so what he sees. And he said, um, the angel, this is wickedness. And he cast it in the midst of the ephah. So he puts this woman back in this basket and he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. So he puts the lid back on top of it. Then lifted up mine eyes and looked and behold, there came out two women and the wind was in their wings for they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. So they begin flying with the basket with the woman in it. Then said I to the angel that talked with me, whither do these bear the ephah? And he said unto me, to build it in a house in the land of Shinar. This is Babylon. And it shall be established and set thereupon in her own base. As I said, it's an interesting text. And we'll try to discover, you know, what it means. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the day. 
Lord, thank you for the time to assemble together. Lord, this is a, a special, precious time. Lord, I appreciate the opportunity to be here, to study your word, to discuss it together with the church family. And so, Lord, we ask for your help in making application tonight to understand it. Lord, tonight as a church family, I think we can all come before your throne tonight and ask for a special intervention tonight, Lord, for little baby Rosalie tonight, that, Lord, you would just be with the goings and the handings, Preston and Dean, in a special way. And, Lord, we pray that you would just um, touch this little baby and Lord, we all want it to be safe and healthy. And so we certainly ask for that. So Lord, lend your help in the coming moments to the preaching of this text. And I ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can be seated, of course. Because of the time, if we take, have that absence from the text, I'll just be a little bit of review. The book of Zechariah is a message of both encouragement and warning to what we're calling the post-exile Jewish community. Um, after the city, temple, the nation of Jerusalem, the nation of Judah, and the temple therein uh, was destroyed by the Babylonians, they were gone, carried away in exile by the Babylonians for a period of 70 years. Daniel the prophet understood that they were being punished for their sins, and he predicted that they would be in this exile for 70 years and then be returned back. Um, and the time for them to come home now was accomplished. Seventy years had passed since Jerusalem, the temple, really Judah, had been destroyed. And Babylon, their original captors, had been destroyed themselves. Persia had become the new world power. Uh, Babylon was relegated to defeat. And, but the children of Israel re remained in the area where Babylon once was, what we might call the regions of Shinar. It's an old term for Babylon. But they're now under Persian rule. Well, a new Persian king arose who, for many reasons, saw it expedient to return the, the Jews back to Palestine, back to their original homeland. Of course, we know this, that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and this is really the Lord's doing. But the circumstances politically arranged themselves, so this would happen as well. And so the, re, the, the Jews from this region who were once captive now become, start coming home. The first wave of Jews came home under the leadership of Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua was a descendant of Aaron, uh, so a high priest, and Zerubbabel was a descendant of David. And so really have this kind of Old Testament mix of leaders leading the way. In time, Zerubbabel would become governor of the land, and Aaron would be functioning as the high priest once again. Uh, going home was not an easy journey. Just learning to make the journey wasn't easy. But the thought of going to a place that had been utterly destroyed and being uprooted. I mean, let me ask you a question. How long have you lived in your home? And can you imagine whatever length of time that is, packing all that up and moving it across country into a new place? Now think about living in that place for 70 years. You know, that's, that's longer than most of us have been alive. And these people are now being told, you can go home. And you're going to go home to a place that for many of them, they wouldn't even know or recognize. And you're going to go home to, to a place where there are people who've moved in in your absence and they see this as their home now. And you're probably not going to get a warm welcome. And by the way, the work to be done is to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city, rebuild the nation. And, you know, a group of 50,000 people are being asked to do this. As you can imagine, it was, it was an overwhelming task. These people knew the temple had been raised to the ground. They knew that in their absence, other people had come. 
and would not welcome them. And of course, we know that's true. And it was true in Nehemiah's day later. And they knew that they didn't have all the provisions they really needed to do this work. But these Jews were guided by a promise that one day a remnant would gather back in Jerusalem and build a temple that at some point would initiate what we know as the millennial kingdom or what they saw as the rule of the Messiah one day where the Jewish nation would be you know, elevated above all nations. They had this promise in their heart and, and they didn't know if their return would initiate this thousand year reign, but they had this hope in their heart. Now in the moment, there was no Messiah that had presented himself and there was a lot of work. And of course, knowing how much work there was and the prospect of all this adversity, many of the Jews did not want to return. They had made a comfortable living in the land of Shinar or Babylon. And so Zechariah implores them in some of this preaching. He's already done this. This is God's calling for you. You, you need to come back home. Really what you all do in the, in the ensuing decades really is, is, is important and part of God's plan to bring redemption to the world and his eventual kingdom. So in the book of Zechariah, um, Zechariah is now called to, to preach to these 50,000 and others who are returning. His, some of his commentary is directed to Joshua and Zerubbabel to encourage them. And of course, some of his commentary is directed to the people to be an encouragement to them and admonish them. For a time, they had stopped the work, but then they restarted under the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai would be a contemporary of Zechariah in this time, Nehemiah coming later. And, uh, and so he's relating to them the importance of their work of rebuilding the temple, the city, and the role they had the opportunity to play in ushering in the kingdom of God eventually. And he gave them encouragement that, that really so few people could do a great work if God was involved in it. It was possible. And of course, yet these people still struggled. They questioned their leadership a little bit. And, you know, they, they wondered if God was really involved in this because, you know, if God was involved, that life would be easier, right? And it wasn't easy, but Zechariah was telling them that God was with them. These were people who, I want you to think about this for a moment. So let's, let's think about this. Who's coming home? Who's coming home? 70 years earlier, the, the people um, had been involved in decades, if not hundreds of years of, I don't know if I can say apostasy, but in um, worship and a religion gone bad, right? That makes sense? That's why they're being punished. This is why they, they were taken by the Babylonians. It was God's judgment upon them for decades or hundred years of not really serving God. Those are the people who went away captive for 70 years. So that's what we're starting with, okay? Most of these people thought they were, if you think about Jeremiah's day, um, Jeremiah preached to an obstinate people, right? Remember we, we studied that, Jeremiah? The audience, he was obstinate. They weren't listening. They were, they were uh, not wanting to serve God. Those people are the people who are judged, and those are people who went away captive in Babylon, okay? So these aren't sterling examples of God's servants. Secondly, these people had been in Babylon for 70 years. If you can imagine, maybe a little bit of Babylon had rubbed off on them. Are you following where I'm, where I'm going with this? These weren't the best of people coming home. Now, they did have the writings of Jeremiah. They did have some revelation during this time of their sins. There was a level of repentance, 
But this was a pretty rough bunch of people coming back home, right? And they needed some preaching. They needed some encouragement. They needed some reminding that, listen, um, you, you, you went to captivity for a reason. It would be really unwise of you to bring those reasons for judgment back with you into Israel once again. So you follow that line of thinking? Like, this is a rough group of people who they, had, they needed a lot of help. And yes, they understood some of their mistakes, but they were a people who had a sense of a holy calling, but they probably weren't very holy themselves yet. And so they received preaching and encouragement from Haggai and Zechariah, again, later Nehemiah. And so it was this group of people who had come back to do this great work. And they had a heart initially to do it. They were easily discouraged. But these were people who had character flaws. Um, they went to Babylon because of idolatry, right? They struggled with false worship. They spent 70 years in a place where there was nothing but false worship. And so it would have been really easy for them to bring this back. And, and, and this was just, this was the historic problem of the Jewish nation. God built a nation of the Jews when they were in Egypt. Remember this? So they grew up to this, whatever it was, a million people, four million people in Egypt. And when they, the children of Israel came out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses, they came out and the first thing they did was get involved in idol worship. Right? They built a golden calf. So they brought the idolatry of Egypt into Canaan. They get into Canaan and guess what they find? A, a nation of idolatrous people. And so they began to incorporate some of the worship of Canaan. And we talked about synchronism, worshiping Jehovah and the gods of the nations around them. And they did that to hedge their bets and for whatever reasons. But that was part of it. Now these people have been taken away captivity because of idolatry. And yet that's all they were really around in Babylon. Think about this historically and biblically. Babylon is really the epicenter of evil in the Bible, right? Historically, it's like the epicenter of evil of where all idolatry comes from. So now these people are coming back again, having probably been somewhat influenced by idolatry. And so Zechariah is looking at these people whose character is not perfect, who may have a hint of idolatrous tendency in them. And so God gives him these dreams. And we'll make a connection between those in just a moment. And so he's addressing these things. And so they, they need some guidance. They probably need some correction. And so in Zechariah chapter 5, two visions are given to Zechariah to understand and then to preach this to the people. So let's go through those very quickly tonight. If you look at the first verses of the chapter, the first vision has to do with a flying scroll. Now, you can think about like a scroll in the Old Testament, um, but this one was really big, basically like 20 by 30 feet. And it was suspended in the air. And the angel says, look up, what do you see? And, you know, Zechariah says, I see a flying scroll. And there's uh, inscribed on either side of it, basically what we would understand is thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not bear false witness. Now, Zechariah calls it a curse. And the reason he calls it a curse is because when you don't obey the law, then that becomes a what for you? A curse. You're judged for that. So that's the idea here. But th this curse is going, this scroll, the idea is it's kind of flying throughout the land. And, and so Zechariah looks at this and he's saying, well, this is God's judgment. And, and God's going to judge those who steal 
and those who bear false witness. And, and this is what he takes away. And so then again, the text, we go on the text, angel directs Zechariah to look up to the sky and he sees this, this flying scroll and he understands that God's saying those who do this will be judged. These two laws of Moses were in the original Decalogue and you know, there, there may be something specific about these two laws. They could be representative of the, the law as a whole, but what both these things have to do for sure is this, is that um, it's really important how I treat you and how you treat me. I don't steal from you. You don't steal from me. And you don't talk bad, bad about me and I don't talk bad about you. All right? In other words, these two laws represent that in order to have a community of faith, we have to treat each other right. And, and that's sort of where he's leading to. And these people, there have been scarcity, there may have been some squabbling, and it may have been real easy to steal and to bear false witness. And so there's this warning, don't do that. And there's a second vision, and it's a little more, um, I'll use the word bizarre, it's unique. And again, the angel invites Zechariah to look up again, and he looks up again. And this time he sees an ephah, which is a unit of measurement, like five gallons. Um, of course, proportions here don't really work in the dream. But in this context, it represents a basket. And he sees a woman in the basket being kept in by a lead lid. I actually said that correctly, a lead lid. The idea is a heavy lid. So the woman in a basket who's being kept in the basket by a heavy lid. And the point of the lid is to keep her from escaping out of the basket. Now, we're told the woman represents evil. Okay, so who would this lady be? Well, most likely she is representative of a false god. Okay, uh, Ashtoreth, Ishtar, the queen of heaven. I, I don't know. There have been lots of possibilities. But this is, she represents evil. It's very makes sense to assume that this is either an idol of one of these gods or she is representative of this false deity herself, but it is evil. It's basically the idea is pure evil that has been placed by God in this basket to be carried away. And so it probably represents idolatrous worship. And so the angel lets Zachariah see this, but then he makes sure that this, this evil is placed back in the basket and the lid goes back on the basket. And then all of a sudden, two women with wings show up. And they swoop down and they grab the basket and they lift it between heaven and earth. And then we're not told who they are. And it's what, you know, the angels, it is, I don't know. They're really not relevant. They are, they are the means by which the basket is taken away, is what, is what they are. And uh, they have wings like storks. A couple of reasons for why they probably had stork wings. Number one, storks were one of the biggest birds the Jewish would have known about. So it was like, this is a big, powerful bird. Uh, they soared high. And from Israel to Babylon was a northern route. And storks, historically from Israel, migrated north. Okay? You with me? Okay, just trying to make some sense of it. But the point is, is great evil is kept in the basket and is being carried away. It's carried away someone specifically it's being taken out of Israel back to where it belongs. Where does it belong or where did it originate from? The land of Shinar. 
Babylon. And it says to its own place that it indicates like its own base, its own temple, its own place of worship. So the idea is this evil doesn't belong in Israel. So everybody look up here. Don't bring it back with you. You got it? Don't bring this back with you. It doesn't belong here. It belongs where it started, and that's Babylon. And in time, God will deal with Babylon. Actually, he already did. But in terms of the great plan of eschatology, you know, even in the book of Revelation, we, we hear about Shinar, Babylon, the root of evil, the place of evil. And so it's basically saying, take this back where it belongs. Okay? Can we just stop here for a second and take a snapshot of what we talked about? A flying scroll. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. That stuff has no place in a community of faith. Amen. And people who do it will be judged. Amen. Don't bring your old character into a new place. That's the idea. It'll be judged. Don't bring your thievery here. Don't bring your, your animosity towards your neighbor. Don't bring it here. It doesn't belong here. We cannot have a community of faith with that kind of character. Don't bring the worship and the religion of Babylon back with you. That's a great evil. We don't want it here. We don't want to go back to the very place we just came from 70 years ago. Just get that out of here. Take it back where it belongs. But it doesn't belong in a community of faith. We can't have a divided heart in God's people. So the takeaway here in the principle is I've already basically articulated it. I think it's obvious. And go like this. For those who serve God... Okay, we're going to make this very applicable. For the membership of Eastland Baptist Church, there's no place for behavior or conduct that violates God's laws. And especially as they relate, you and I not getting along and treating each other with respect. No place for that here. There's a warning in the sky that says, don't do this stuff. There's no place for it. Secondly, there's no place for a heart that is divided in its allegiance to God. God doesn't want your synchronetic worship. He doesn't want you worshiping God and, well, we don't worship Ishtar, but we might struggle with mammon, money, popularity, acceptance, career, I don't know, hobbies. And God says, there's no place for a heart of divided worship. If you're going to come back here and we're going to rebuild this nation and we're going to rebuild this temple and we're going to rebuild our community, we have to treat each other with love and respect and we have to love God with all of our hearts. Otherwise, we're going to go right back to where we came from. And that's the idea in the vision. Now, I don't know if these people were grossly involved in idolatry already. I don't know if they were stealing and, and backbiting. It's a possibility. But God's, if not that this is a prescriptive message, like I often do here from this pulpit, I don't know if we're doing this or not, but hey, church, let's not do that stuff. And that's what he's saying. We're not going to fight with each other. We're going to come here and be committed. 
We're going to give our heart to God. We're going to be fully devoted to Him is what Zechariah is saying to these people. We can't build, and I, I just like this phrase, we can't build the community of faith that God wants if we are careless with the way we treat other people here. And we can't build a true community of faith if we're not really honestly, authentically about worshiping God. We're not here to go through the motions. We're not here just to hear some precepts and principles that might improve our life. What we do here is about worship. It's about bowing down to our Savior and our Creator. It's about giving our hearts to Him genuinely, completely, and fully. We, we can't bring Babylon into the church and be okay. There's another church that tried that in the New Testament, and it was called Corinth. And it didn't go real well for Corinth. As I, when I preach that through the series, I, I use this phrase, the water of the world really can't hurt us until the water of the world gets in the ship. And then that sinks. Now, that ship could be your heart or it could be this church. But there's no place for Babylon in your heart. And there's no place for Babylon in our church. Okay? Everybody with me? That's the idea. You see, God expects us to, expects us to love Him enough to worship Him wholeheartedly. We need to guard our lives and our hearts to make sure we allow nothing that will dilute or compete with our genuine devotion to God. For where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. Now, I don't know what those things might be that would distract us from making God a priority. In the New Testament, you know, the idea of money or mammon, uh, materialism, obviously is the forefront of New Testament thinking. You can't serve God and mammon. Uh, the barn builder, if you're too concerned about just making a living and making more of a living and getting more which you already have enough of, that won't work in the New Testament. And so we can't come here and say God is first, but really my job is. Or really make, having a career is first. Or really my hobby's first. Or really something else is first. And God's saying that won't work. We can't allow materialism, power, popularity, success, um, narcissism, hedonism in our world. We can't allow these things become the treasures of our heart. And so like, tonight we need to look at this text and we need to examine our heart. And we need to maybe consider how much of our heart are we giving away to things that aren't God? Now, we don't need to go hide in some you know, monk-style lifestyle and, and, and do nothing but, you know, talk about the Lord. But here's the idea. God should be the centerpiece of our life. And our life should be built around Him. And in appropriate ways, it ought to be built around this place and, and what we do here. We ought not offer God a kind of commitment that's less than we offer to our own job, our own hobby, or our own pursuits. I mean, literally speaking to the choir tonight, but we'll go to work five days a week and struggle to come to church too. Right? There's nothing holy or spiritual about those meeting days. But the point is the same in a way. 
Why would we give God less than we give to other pursuits of life? Yeah, all we got to do is examine our checkbooks to see some, see some of this stuff. I don't know what to, you know. If everything we're giving goes to the world, my hobby is what I want, and we're, we're giving this pittance to God, we're in trouble. If we struggle to spend time passing out a track and coming to church, but we'll do a thousand other things in the world easily, that's something's wrong with that. It at least merits introspection and evaluation. I'm not saying that not everything has to be evil. There are benign things that can steal our heart away from God. Again, hobbies, pursuits, jobs, attitudes. Let me, let me suggest this. An unexamined life will always drift away from the ultimate and most important priorities. And sometimes we need to say, man, I'm off course and I need to get on course. And that's really what Zechariah is encouraging here. Okay. Let me add another thought to this mix. These people are coming back and they're coming back to serve God. But they're struggling in their character and they're bringing back some ideas and some philosophies from Babylon. Okay. Young people, I want you to pay attention to me in the next few minutes. And they're bringing back some philosophies of the world. They, they've spent 70 years in the world, in the Babylon, and they've, they've listened to the Babylon, Babylonian morality. They've listened to Babylonian philosophy. They've been in the Babylonian educational system. Follow me? We don't take our cues. We don't develop our morality. We don't decide what we want to be right and wrong by what's culturally popular or acceptable. We decide what's right and wrong, ethical and morally acceptable by the word of God. And none of us are free to invent our own version of Christianity. And that's rampant in America. Well, I just believe. I just think. I don't be unkind. I'm going to be unkind. Nobody cares what you think. What we care about is what God thinks. And we don't need Babylonian thinking guiding our morality, our ethics, the way we do church or whatever else. You can't bring back from Babylon whatever you want to bring back, the synchronetic kind of worship. Why I want to worship God and I want to, you know, I want to make a million dollars. I want to worship God and, you know, I, I want to hold on to this part of Babylon and this part of Babylon. If we're going to identify with Christ and God, then we obligate ourselves to the truth. Things like the truth about creation. Okay? What's the Bible say? Well, God created the heavens and the earth. We may not understand all the dynamics of that, but I know this, God is the creator of the world. Okay? I, I, evolutionary thinking is worldly thinking. It's godless thinking. We can't bring into the church our opinions about morality. 
You young people are being inundated, unimaginably inundated, indoctrinated about this is what this is what's acceptable. This is what's right. Homosexuality, transgender, bisexual. Um, gosh, what's all the terms? This is the role of a woman. This is the role of the man. If, you, if you're not careful, you're going to have more Babylon in you than you know. And just because someone on TikTok or wherever says stuff over and over and over and over and over doesn't make it true. What are you trying to say? I'm trying to say that's a problem and it needs fixed. And it's a problem here. And I want to make it clear. I'm not going to, we're not, you parent your children. You need to figure out what some of your kids are thinking. Are you with me? We have people in our youth group are very, very confused about sexual orientation. They're very confused about the way God made people. I can't answer all the questions about the struggles you have, but I can say this. Regardless of the arguments about nature or how I'm born or whatever else, I'm a man, I can lust, and I keep it in check. Because that's God's design for me. So you can be born however way you want to be born or think whatever you want to think, but you obligate yourself as a Christian to follow his way of thinking. Because anything else is anarchy and chaos. Clear on that? So we're not going to have discussions about that stuff in the youth group unless you're going to talk to your mom and dad about it. You can come talk to me about it. Or you can talk to a staff guy about it. But that's not open for debate in the youth group. Do you hear me? Okay. Some of your mom and dads need to clue in. Get your head out of the sand. It's an issue. Babylon's in the church. I'm not picking on anybody because some of you dads probably need to clean up yourselves too. Some of your moms need to get your face out of Facebook or wherever it's at and stop being so educated by these worldly things. If you're gonna, just challenge yourself to spend at least a fraction of the time in the Bible that you do there and let that be some guidance for your thinking. Is that fair? I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm playing the role of Zachariah tonight. I'm trying to do some preventative maintenance. Um, we are going to be what the Word of God tells us we're supposed to be, and that's not open for new interpretation, new thoughts, new philosophies, or the thinking from Babylon. That stuff needs to go in a basket and go back where it belongs to the world. Okay? Put it back in the basket doesn't belong in our homes or in our church. We have real struggles with issues like lust or confusion or gambling or whatever else. That stuff needs to be dealt with. 
But just because contemporary culture tells us that a thousand things are now okay and we're suddenly newly enlightened doesn't mean that it's okay. Now, I can have empathy for struggles, even things that I don't understand, but to accept it is to take me to a place I cannot go. And it's just going to make us Corinth or Babylon. We just, we can't just choose. You just can't, look, okay, let me bring this back into a safer place. You just can't choose to hold a grudge. The text says pretty clearly, don't steal, don't backbite. You just can't choose to be mad with the church because you feel like you're justified or want to. You just can't choose to have a bad attitude here. That's, that's, that violates God's word. That's that doesn't belong here. Put, a put it in a basket, put a lid on it, and send it away. That's a little bit called repentance. You can't approach God on a part-time basis. I'll come to church when I want to. I'll be committed when I want to be. I'll, I'll give and serve in this way. No, 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 no. If you're going to be a Christian, you're kind of all in or not. This part-time stuff, this, this partial commitment that's of the world right now, that is foreign to the pages of the Bible. If we don't put our hand to the plow and think about, I'm going to be a casual Christian. I'll go to church when I want to. I'll give what I want. How about this? Do what you think the Bible tells you to do. Be as generous as the Bible instructs you to be. Learn a little bit about sacrifice in this world as, as a Christian. Learn to submit yourself to God. I mean, you just can't invent what you want to invent. That is the stuff of Babylon. We've got to be all in. Can't approach God in just any way. God wants us to come in a sincere way. There's so much I want to say, I'm going to stop. Do we get the idea? There's an evil that, if we're not careful, can filter and find its way into Jerusalem, into the temple, and into the church. Now, that stuff needs to go away. There's a warning. It's the word of God. That, that, that stuff can't be blessed. And by the way, there's, there's blessing in the word of God, too. You follow it and you will be. But you can't just, can't violate God's word. You can't just live what you want to and expect things to be okay. You can't bring the philosophies, the evil of Babylon in here. Because the text is pretty clear. There's coming a day when God's going to judge that stuff. And I don't want him to judge it here at Eastland Baptist Church. Every person in this room, okay? And I don't mean to pick on you young people. Everyone in this room brings in a little bit of Babylon. All of us do. A bad heart, a bad attitude, a bad spirit, our own opinions, a bent, whatever else. Sometimes that gets pressed in the things I talked about in a bigger way. But all these things, none of those, none of those things belong here. And so Zechariah is saying, 
hey, let's not try to build a community of the faith with the building blocks of the world. It won't work.